the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. You were sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cut deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's Friday. We finished another week on the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls so we can answer your Bible questions. Whatever is on your heart and mind, we will do the best that we can to give you those answers. We appreciate your live calls. It makes the show more interesting, frankly, because you're more interesting than I am. Here are the numbers, 340 That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest thing for you to do is to use the free KSLR mobile app. And hands-free, you can just hit the Call Now button at the top of the page, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. 340-9585 for your calls. Hey, I wanted to thank uh, those of you who came last night, and uh, our live stream numbers were way up, so some of you got to watch Pastor Rawl last night for for me, and I know it was the same for Rawl, and, and he would want me to express his gratitude for how welcome uh, everybody made him feel, uh, but uh, it, it's great to get to meet some radio listeners. We had a whole bunch in the audience who uh, came, and, and I thought they came for Rawl, and they did, but, but they listened to this program as well, uh, and my teaching programs, and so lots of pictures taken, and uh, got to meet a lot of nice people, and that's always one of the nicest things about uh, what we get to do. We get to meet so many people that Jesus loves and died for. And uh, it's like instantly we're family, even though we've never met until uh, that moment. So uh, thanks for coming, and I appreciate uh, knowing that so many of you are interested in the program and are regular listeners of the program. So thank you, thank you, thank you very, very much. Hey, because it's Friday, we've got a busy weekend, of course. Tonight we uh, finish, I hope I can finish, Acts chapter 4. A marvelous Bible study. Um, you know, whenever you study the formation of the early church, God is giving us examples. He's giving us a model to follow. Uh, and if we follow that model, we can't miss out on everything that God is doing. So uh, tonight, Acts chapter 4, uh, I'm going to continue in Romans chapter 9 on Sunday. Uh, that's just one of those great uh, passages of Scripture um, doctrinally speaking, that that has immense practical practical application. Um, I had something else, but hey, I'm 66 years old and I keep forgetting, so I'll think of it sometime during the course of the store of the of the program. Let's go to the phones right away and talk with Rick on line one from San Antonio. Rick, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor Ron. How you doing? I'm doing well, Rick. Thanks. Great, great. I'm glad you continue your ministry. It's fun. Excellent. Thank you for being faithful. Brother, I needed to, um, needed to ask you. Uh, the Bible tells us, teaches us that if we resist the devil, he will flee. 
uh, I was talking to my son about this, and I go, but that doesn't mean that he's not going to come back. <laughs> right? Yeah, and, for sure. <laughs> okay. Um, and then through the years of, you know, my years of being a Christian, here in Christian circles, we like to say, uh, well, you know, if, if the devil ain't making him life miserable, if he ain't attacking you, it's because he's got you where he wants you. And, um, well, it just, you know, that was said from the pulpit Sunday by a, uh, another preacher. And, you know, I was talking to my sons about that. And, and I told him I have a problem because he kept, then, then he said later that, you know, well, then it's not. Uh, I hope that uh, we would end up being, uh, the church would be on, you know, on fire so much that the devil would just end up leaving us, you know, uh, getting scared and running away. And mm-hmm. well, that's, which which one is it then? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, I made, my sons are kind of like, well, yeah, you're right. I mean, and I, you know, I wanted them to, you know, chew on that. And uh, I said, well, look, uh, it's not biblical. It's, I don't think it is. And, and that's why I wanted to ask you, I mean, uh, that if, if, the, if the devil ain't making a, our lives miserable, you know, messing with us and all that, that he's got us where he wants us, that's not biblical uh, because the Bible tells us if we resist them, he will flee from us. But mm-hmm. um, problems and things that we that come into our lives are not all the devil's attacks. And um, how do you address that? that person. Yeah, I, I can do that, Rick. Thank you very, very much and appreciate your, your kind thoughts. A couple of things, you know, um, the, the devil is, is never going to give up. He is absolutely relentless. He is without mercy. Uh, he waits till you're down and then he kicks harder. He never says, oh, I'm going to give him a break because they're having such a bad time. That's when he tries to destroy because that's his job, right? To kill, to steal, to destroy. He wants to rob everything that God has done for us to take from us. Now, he knows he's lost our soul. If we're born again Christians, the enemy knows the enemy knows that we he's lost our soul. However, he wants to impact our witness. And because he wants to turn out the light, you know, Jesus said, what good is salt if it loses its saltiness? Well, there's a lot of very unsalty Christians walking around, and the devil doesn't do much to mess with them because he's already got that compromised witness. So we've, we have to understand that, that he's always going to be there. Peter says he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for that moment to, to devour. Um, we know the example uh, in, in the book of Job, the poem of Job. That, that he was inspecting Job way back in the oldest book written in our Bibles. So he's always going to be there. Now, the question is, um, um, what does that mean and what does it look like? Now, when James says to resist the devil and he will flee from you, uh, if we would change the word resist to obedience, if we are obedient to Christ, the devil will flee. That doesn't mean he won't take his shots. It means instead that he's looking for those moments where we're disobedient, when we're out of fellowship with the Lord, and that's when he's going to come and destroy. The devil is patient. I told you already that he's relentless. So for individuals, the way to resist the devil is to be obedient to the Lord. Uh, Acts 5.32 says God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey. And the, and the, the, the context there is in the power to overcome the attacks of the enemy, the power to overcome anything that comes against us in our lives. But I think it's naive, Rick, if we start to think that maybe I'll just resist the devil and, and he'll leave me alone. Because that's never, ever going to happen. Uh, I also think we have to make the distinction between churches and individuals. Uh, you know, every pastor would tell you this. Um, my most faithful attender at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, every single service in church is the devil. You know, Paula almost never misses, but sometimes she misses. The devil never misses a service. And he's always trying to destroy what the word is it's being being taught. He's trying to whisper lies and confusion in the ears of the people listening. So the way we resist is to equip ourselves, to arm ourselves with the Word of God, to be um, um, students rightly dividing the Word of God, and then we resist Him. One thing I want to say, Rick, and you didn't ask this, but, but resist the devil doesn't mean that we shout at him. 
It doesn't mean that we no, mock no. him and bind him. It means that we're with yes. Jesus. And Hebrews calls Jesus our elder brother. You know, big brothers are, are intended to protect little brothers. And so when we're with Jesus, that's the most effective way to resist the devil of all. We're with Jesus, and then we can know for sure that when Satan is sort of prowling around us looking for an opening, that he won't find any, because Jesus is going to be sitting there saying, no, you can't come here because I'm too close. And if we understand that, we understand the devil's never going to leave us alone, but we always stay on guard. We always stay equipped. Then we're protected, and the enemy can huff and he can puff, and he will. He'll threaten to blow our house down, but we know that we're protected by the presence of Jesus. So that's the way to deal with this resist the devil and he will flee. It's simply a matter of being filled with the Holy Spirit because of your obedience uh, to and your presence with Jesus every day. Does that make sense? Exactly. Yep. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, yeah, um, that's that's the way I explain it to the sons and and I was talking about it, but it just seemed like it made a contradiction, you know, and... uh, Uh, because I mean, if you're not suffering things, I give, I give thanks to the Lord. Things aren't, you know, we're not falling apart, and we're not having all kinds of problems. Um, well, you know, little things creep up that trying yeah. to save money, and then all of a sudden, what two weeks ago, my water heater goes out, <laughs> so we're out for hundred bucks, you know. And I see, yeah. I see those things as part of life that you just got to deal yeah. with, and. And I say, well, thank you, Lord, you know, for giving me patience and uh, helping me uh, to be able to do this on my own. I have to pay somebody else. <laughs> so, uh, so things like that, I don't see like those, those things are attached double. Yeah, uh, and they're they're not. They're no. Yeah, make no mistake now, Rick. While the devil doesn't cause water, he used to go out, they just wear out and car <laughs> right. engines to, to blow up. Uh, he will use those things. When we get hit with yeah. some unexpected uh, expense or when we start to worry or, or be afraid of it because something has happened, uh, the devil's going to be right there. And those are the opportunities he's waiting for. But, but we, we, he doesn't cause them. I think one of the problems as Christians exactly. is that we either give the devil too much credit or no credit at mm-hmm. all. And I think the balance is understanding how powerful he is and understanding his intent to destroy us. Uh, If we understand those two things, then we have a good balance in terms of our spiritual warfare. Obviously, Paul in Ephesians 6 uh, gives us the full armor of God. Uh, It's not uh, intended to be a literal picture. It's very representative of what I've been talking about, being with Jesus and being obedient to Jesus. And then you have that peace that comes from abiding in him. You know, Rick, I was thinking while you were talking that that Jesus gave us an illustration of this very thing. Uh, when he allowed the, the demons that were in legion to to be cast into the herd of swine. Uh, he wanted to show the people who were watching what the devil's intent in their lives was. And so when he, 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 he did that and they ran off the cliff, uh, that was uh, all he needed to show. That's the devil's intent for all of us. And all we have to do is remember that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And if we have that confidence and if we stay close to Jesus, the devil is going to be there. And he's going to, like I said, huff and puff and try to blow your house down. But uh, there's not going to be an opening for him. And as for me personally, I want to be sure that there's no openings for the enemy to attack. He doesn't need any help. And I just want to be sure I'm not giving him any help. Thanks, Rick. I appreciate it very much. Absolutely. Thank you for the call. 340-9585. Let's go to Tanya, my friend in California. Hi, Tanya. Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you? I'm doing well today. Thanks. Good. So listen, um, I called last week about the book of Amos, and I actually got the the timeline wrong, the schedule wrong. So we're, we're going to study the book of Joel, and um, I tried to t- take on the first chapter, and there's a couple of questions I have. Um, particularly, there's, there's some, some references I'm not familiar with. Uh, one of it is in chapter 4. It talks about the locust, the chewing locust, the swarming locust, the crawling locust, the consuming locust. Um, is there some significance in that is one question. Um, and then in verse 6, I don't know if you have your Bible. I'm sure you have it. Andy, um, yeah. it says, for a nation has come up against my land. What nation is he referencing there? 
And then I got a little confused in verse 15 where it says, Alas, for the day, um, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Are they, what's he referencing with regards to the day of the Lord? And then my last question, Pastor Ron, is as we make our way through these minor prophets, um, what are your thoughts on Dr. J. Vernon McGee and his, um, I know you, I know, uh, uh, Pastor Chuck is another resource as well, but just looking for um, some additional uh, background and, and, and ensuring that I'm prepared for the studies and, and uh, <laughs> any questions I have, I can get answered or I call you. You know what I mean? So just curious yeah. about your thoughts on that, and I'll take your answer off the air. Okay, thank you, Tanya. Appreciate it very, very much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this is a book that, that uh, is... is um, uh, important. Now she said chapter four. There's only three chapters. She was she was speaking about uh, chapter one with the references. Um, and and these are books where God is using natural phenomenon that all of His listeners would be familiar with. Um, uh, a plague of locusts. Locusts would sweep in over the plain, and they would devour everything that was alive, and they would leave just just entire fields, entire uh, countrysides completely barren. That's how thick the horde of locusts would be. So when he's talking about those things, he's using imagery, something that they would understand, something that they experience in their lives. And what he's referring to is this is what the people who are going to come against you are going to be like. Now, um, the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. The reference in verse 15 of chapter 1, Tanya, is um, uh, God saying that even though these are uh, Babylonians or Assyrians or any other of the enemies of God that that God used to bring judgment upon the people of Israel, um, the judgment came because the people of Israel were disobedient. God gave them over to these invading armies. And so in this particular case, um, uh, the locust is a picture of um, the Babylonians coming um, and, and the, the strength and the total destruction that they will leave behind. Um, so it's, this is a word, and this is one of the things that, that makes prophecy a little bit different, difficult. Um, there's both short-term and long-term fulfillment. So all of the prophets prophesied of these uh, invasions. Um, Isaiah uh, was concerned primarily with with um, uh, Assyria, and uh, others were were concerned with Babylon. But what he's saying is, this is going to happen. I have summoned these people from far parts, and they are going to come against you, and they will destroy you. And and it was God trying to give the Israelites a chance to repent for their wickedness, for their um, um, turning away from God for the horrible lives that they live like the pagan peoples around them and primarily Tanya for uh, their their foray into idolatry where they were exchanged their relationship with the true and living God uh, to to these pieces of wood and stones and worshiping the stars and the sky and the moon and um, uh, the sun rather you know those um, they, they were doing what the people around them did uh, and so he says, because you will not repent, I'm going to send these hordes. Now, another reason this book, and I won't forget about J. Vernon McGee, but another reason this book is important is because it's quoted by Peter uh, in the book of Acts, the day the church was born. Um, he, he talks about uh, this. these men aren't drunk, as you suppose, but this was what was predicted by the prophet Joel. He talks about the, the, the moon turning to blood and the sun turning dark. Uh, he talks about these judgments coming. And, and so there's a short-term fulfillment in the Old Testament with the enemies of God, but there's a long-term fulfillment going into the days of the, of the end we call the Great Tribulation. So those signs are going to be. So you need a little bit of help. J. Vernon McGee is excellent uh, and, and pretty simple. He doesn't do anything really, really difficult. But there's some other really good ones as well. J.B. Phillips has a good commentary on on um, um, Joel um, uh, the Minor Prophets, there are, there are lots of books. If you just Google the Minor Prophets, you can find some really, really good commentators. But don't go lightly over this. This is really, really an important book um, because of it being quoted 
in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2. So uh, J. Vernon McGee is a great place to start. His stuff is free and it's easily accessible. Um, um, I listen to him to go to sleep every night when I'm in bed at 11 o'clock on the radio. And um, uh, I find him refreshing. I like his candor. Um, You know, J. Vernon is a was a brilliant man. Even now he's more brilliant because he's with Jesus. But he was a brilliant man. Uh, He wrote his own translations from the original languages. You know, he sounds like a country bumpkin. But he wrote his own translations from the original languages. Uh, And he he was just uh, absolutely brilliant. Um, So if you get beyond the the twang and the, the, the sort of the country side of him, uh, he's got a lot of great insight. Uh, he is very solid doctrinally, and I don't think you will find uh, much in the way of objection. Uh, if you listen to his radio show, uh, he's also pretty good in terms of applying the principles that he's teaching. And as you know, Tanya, I'm very, very tuned into that. The, the Bible uh, has great value, but, but if it doesn't change the way we live, it doesn't teach us how to make changes in the way we live, then it's of no value at all. So, uh, once again, the, the chapter 1, verse 15, alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. He's talking about the day of judgment. That's the short-term fulfillment, but the long-term fulfillment speaks of the time in the end, the great tribulation. So, I hope that helps, uh, Tanya. Thanks very, very much. And this is a book that you're going to enjoy teaching uh, to the ladies. God bless you. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Um, let's go to a question that was sent in from our email inbox from Drew. He says, Pastor Ron, I'd like to order a T-shirt for the upcoming Joy of Jesus. We're proudly in North Carolina. <laughs> is that possible? Uh, and, and then we got another question uh, following that. But Drew, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about Joy of Jesus. Um, for everybody in the audience, write down Saturday, October the 28th. Put it on your calendar. Uh, we are once again, this is going to be our 18th annual Joy of Jesus celebration at Travis Park in downtown San Antonio. Uh, thousands of people are going to be there. It's from 11 o'clock to 3. We'll talk more about it. Every year I have Pastor Juan, who's our Joy of Jesus coordinator. Uh, he'll be on the on the show with us in the coming weeks. Uh, but it's just a great, great time. We, uh, as a church body, we are, we're out there in mass. Uh, we're feeding um, people. We're, we're providing clothing, doing haircuts and makeover, all kinds of things that, that, uh, that we do. Our entire medical staff will be out there. Um, but it isn't just a, a ministry to homeless. Primarily it is. This year we're going to add a concert. Jocelyn Enriquez, who is the wife of our worship pastor, is going to be there and going to do a concert. We've got a couple other, uh, two, another pastor and his wife who are recording artists here at Calvary Chapel. They're going to do um, um, some of their hip-hop stuff, Christian stuff, um, uh, because we want a, a wider audience. So please be praying for Joy of Jesus. It's coming up October 28th. If there's any possible way you can be there, you should be there. Now, Drew, we'd love for you to have a T-shirt. Uh, you can go to our website, calvarysa.com, and you can order it uh, right away. In fact, I'm told the deadline is Sunday, and this coming Sunday, uh, and we want uh, people to wear them here. We'd love for you to have one and wear it proudly in North Carolina. By the way, it'll be a great witnessing tool. Uh, the shirts are bright in color. They stand out. And when you see an army of, of people serving from Calvary Chapel of San Antonio wearing those T-shirts, you wonder, wow, all these people. Uh, but it's, it's a, a great T-shirt design, and we'd love for you to have it. So go to calvarysa.com, and you can order it. You just have to do it before Sunday. Now, here's a question that Drew had. He says, we Christians consider David a giant in the faith. My question concerns the many prayers David lifted to the Lord about protection from his enemies. David didn't simply ask the Lord to be delivered from his enemies. He prayed that God would do terrible things to them. Psalm 109 comes to mind. But Jesus taught his followers to love your enemies, Matthew chapter 5. Just because David and many Old Testament heroes didn't live in Jesus' day, does that mean his revelations were not available to them? The Old Testament God was and is will be the New Testament Jesus and vice versa. If David was the man after God's own heart, 
It seems to me that God would have placed love for his enemies there. My thoughts, please. Um, Drew, uh, a lot of people have trouble with this, but two things we need to remember. Um, David had a heart after God's own heart, but his was a heart for justice. Remember, the Holy Spirit didn't live in David the way he lives in you and in me. Uh, the Spirit would come upon David in power to do great and mighty things, but he didn't have the Holy Spirit. So the one thing that David, in his limited knowledge of Jesus, limited compared to you and to me, uh, he, he wouldn't understand the teachings on love. And in fact, uh, in Matthew chapter 5, you're quoting the Sermon on the Mount. Um, that stumbled all of the Jews that were there listening to it. Love your enemies to turn the other cheek if they ask to, 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 to walk with you a mile, go to, those kind of things. They didn't want that. Jews wanted to be delivered from Rome. So the Jews still had that heart of justice. They wanted the God of justice, the God of holiness, to vindicate them, to deliver them. What they didn't understand and what David would have no way of knowing is that Jesus came to deliver them from the most insidious enemy of all, and that's the enemy of sin. So lighten up on David a little bit. Uh, he is a man after God's own heart, but remember he knew a holy, just God. He didn't know a God of sacrificial love. Hey, we got 30 minutes left in the week. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. 340-9585. We will be back in two minutes. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program, our last 30 minutes of the week, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's a question from our mobile app anonymously. And Anonymous, I want to apologize. I, I really wanted to get to this question much earlier in the week because I know that people agonize over this and your question just kind of got lost in the pile that we have. And so please forgive me. Um, the question is this, Pastor, can you please talk about soul ties and how to get deliverance? And then uh, he or she says, thank you. Anonymous, you don't need to be delivered from soul ties because soul ties aren't real. This silliness that's taught in these faith and prosperity and deliverance ministries has caused people more pain than you can possibly imagine. So, please, we have been delivered. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We need to understand that in the depth of our souls... Because we, we, we hear this nonsense being taught, books being sold, and, and honestly, uh, it's, it's, it's just pure evil. It's pure evil. Now, I, I, I won't impugn the motives of those who are doing it. But every time somebody in the church that you attend talks about these things, get up and run away. It's just that simple. It's just one more thing for the devil to pound you over. And we don't want you to do that. You know, the phrase soul ties isn't in the Bible. The idea of soul, size, soul ties is not biblical. It's a man-made, um, really, speculation um, that, that people impose on scriptures uh, in an attempt to explain behaviors, to, to say, well, the reason you're like this is because you have soul ties to people in the past. Soul ties are said to be connections from one person's soul to or into another person's soul, and that's simply a concept that has no basis whatsoever in Scripture. So you don't need to get deliverance. Can I say one other thing to you, Anonymous? Everything that you need deliverance from, you have been delivered from in the person of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So deliverance ministries, casting out demons out of Christians, all of that nonsense causes so much pain and so much harm in the body of Christ. Please, please, please don't go to any church. Don't listen to anyone who's going to proclaim this nonsense. Uh, I can hear uh, the, the, the pain in your question, um, but it's unnecessary pain. It's like asking... 
talk about pink elephants and how to be delivered from them. There's no such thing. So you have no soul ties. The only unhealthy thing about your past is that you were separate from Christ. You were on your own. You were living a life of sin. It was your fault. You recognized it. Ask Jesus for forgiveness and you were made completely new. Completely new. So please throw away any notion that anything regarding soul ties has any value or relevance at all. Here is a question from, let me see here, Alex. He or she says, I say the he or she because we have two Alexes who are girls in our church. Uh, How can I speak to someone who claims to believe but doesn't believe the Bible? Uh, I think the way you, you, you share them is that there's no way to know who God is apart from the Bible. It's that simple. Ask them what their objections are. What's the basis even for believing? I mean, you know, somebody says, well, I believe in God. That's not really believing in God if you don't believe in Jesus. Jesus said, if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. So, usually, Alex, there's a deeper problem than this. This is a person who typically doesn't want authority in their lives, even if that authority is is the Word of God. You know, there's a lot of things in the Bible that that it doesn't matter whether you're Pastor Ron or or somebody reading the Bible. We don't like some things that it says. We want to do something. The Bible says it's wrong. It's it's just easier to say, well, you know, I don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. But challenge them to find out for themselves. If you say, well, why don't you believe the Bible is the Word of God? They'll come up with some nonsense. Well, it's full of contradictions. Challenge them. Show me a contradiction. They can't show you one. They can't show you one. And then challenge them to at least be intellectually honest enough and let them know that salvation hangs in the balance because the Bible reveals Jesus and it's only the real Jesus that saves. It's very, very important, Alex. Without the Word of God, we're just left all alone as orphans. And Jesus said to his disciples, I won't leave you as orphans, but I will be with you always. His Word, His Word, His Word. So just challenge him. Don't argue with him. Just challenge him to believe and then pray for him. Um, if they'll open the Bible, the Lord will reveal himself to him. Thank you, Alex. Appreciate the question. Here's Phyllis from San Antonio Online One. Phyllis, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Well, hello, Pastor Ron. I pray that you and Paula are well. We are. She's especially well, Phyllis. That's great. <laughs> Listen, I had a couple of questions I stumbled over. Um, in uh, John, I think it's somewhere John 14, when Jesus uh, told his disciples he's going to send another comforter. Okay, mm-hmm. when I j- j- uh, got into the book of Acts... And when they saw him descending up into heaven, is that when he sent his uh, Holy Spirit to them? And if so, uh, was that the first time they actually felt the Holy Spirit? And then uh, to piggyback on that, when he was talking to Nicodemus in chapter 3, is that what he was actually trying to tell Nicodemus? You have to have my spirit within you. I would love for you to answer these, and uh, I appreciate your answer, and uh, I'll, I'll get you off the air, okay? Thank you, Phyllis. Appreciate the call. It's good to hear from you. Thank you. Um, uh-huh. Uh, let me answer the, the last question first, because uh, Jesus wasn't talking to Nicodemus about the Holy Spirit. He was talking to Nicodemus about a new birth. Now, he's talking to Israel's preeminent teacher, And he's saying you must be born again or you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus was incredulous. How can this be? How can a man crawl into his mother's womb a second time? Now, Nicodemus wasn't being coy. He wasn't being naive. He was saying, basically, how could I have been so wrong? I I follow the law. I'm Israel's teacher. I'm rich, which Jews believe to be a sign of God's blessing. Uh, I'm, I'm influential. How could I be so wrong? So when he talks about the, the, the Spirit, one has to be born of the, of the water and of the Spirit. 
he's talking about two births, the natural birth and then the second birth in Christ. Uh, so he wasn't talking about the Holy Spirit coming upon him uh, or coming in him because Jesus, this is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's still got three uh, plus years uh, to live before the Spirit will be given. Now, with regard to the other question, um, the Spirit was given the very first time uh, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when when the room was filled with the sound of a mighty rushing wind, not real wind, but the sound. Um, they saw cloven tongues of fire, and everybody spoke in other tongues, tongues, languages that they didn't understand. That was the grand entrance of the Holy Spirit into this world, the birth of the church. So that's when the Spirit was given. That was when this another comforter, another counselor made his grand appearance. Now, it's important to note that prior to that, after Jesus was crucified and risen from the dead, in the Gospel of John, um, just before Jesus ascended into the heavens, um, he breathed on them, it says, and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit of God. He breathed on his disciples. So at that moment, their calling, uh, their anointing as apostles, um, what, what we would call their born-again experience, the Spirit of God came to live within them. But the same Spirit didn't make His appearance into the world yet until um, that day of Pentecost, uh, some 50 days later. So please understand that the Spirit was given uh, only when uh, the Spirit came into this world on the day of Pentecost. And that spirit, of course, was intended to empower. You know, one of the things we're going to talk about tonight in the book of Acts, chapter 4, is we're going to see Peter and John and the others filled with the spirit again. Now, in the first four chapters, this has already happened three times, filled again, again, and again. So the fact that the spirit has made his entrance still requires us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, fill us to do any kind of ministry for the Lord, to be obedient um, we need to be filled with the Spirit, the Spirit's power. We have the presence of the Spirit when we get saved, but we have the Spirit's power when we obey. And we need, of course, the Spirit's power to do anything, to be a good husband, a good wife, a good mom, a good dad, uh, to be a good employee. We need, in order to bring honor and glory to Jesus, we need to be filled with God's Spirit. So that's when he made his entrance. Um, imagine how surprised they were on that day when he came rushing into that upper room. Thanks, Phyllis. God bless you. Let's go to Nigel on line two. Nigel, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hello. Thank you for uh, taking my call. My, uh, <coughs> my question was uh, regarding the, uh, uh, I guess, historical evidence uh, validity of the actual person of Jesus Christ walking this earth. I had a, I had a friend who... Uh, I was talking with him about how Judaism and Christianity were, I mean, they're, it's basically, uh, Christians are basically adopted, you know, the Jewish faith, and we're, we're one. And uh, he said he didn't even believe that Jesus was a real person. And um, and I was having a lot of trouble coming up with any, uh, any sources to, to give to him. And I was wondering if you could help me out with that. I can do that. Thank you very, very much. Uh, a couple of things, um, uh, depending on how deep he wants to go, uh, there's a, a little book called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, uh, which uh, presents overwhelming evidence, um, the, the new evidence that demands a verdict by Josh McDowell. But we can go farther than that. Now, if he's Jewish um, and, and he wants to deny the, the, the overwhelming evidence that Jesus was alive, you can Google anything relative to Jesus' historicity. Um, uh, Josephus, who was a Jew writing history for Rome um, uh, after Jesus' death and resurrection, talks a, a, a lot about, and th this, is, this is very, very close to the incident, talks a lot about um, this person, Jesus, and the miracles that he was credited with doing. Uh, the, the fact, Nigel, is that we have more overwhelming evidence of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection then we have, for example, uh, that William Shakespeare lived. Um, you know, there are some conspiracy nuts say, well, Shakespeare wasn't real. There was a bunch of people writing under that name. Um, but, but you'd have to be silly to look at the evidence that we have and, and conclude that Shakespeare wasn't real. Uh, on the other hand, we have more evidence that Jesus lived and walked this earth 
and change the world forever than we have of any of his contemporaries. So you can find all kinds of things. There's some really, really great early theologians. You can um, uh, get Polycarp's writings. He was a disciple of the Apostle John. Um, um, but but there's, there's, there's no shortage at all of stuff. But let me suggest, and please note the bibliographies uh, in, in these books. Um, Josh McDowell's book, New Evidence That Demands a Verdict, is extensive bibliography. So does um, Lee Strobel's book. Um, uh, another one, there's a, a book by by F.F. F. Bruce, I think it is, called The, the Real Jesus. Um, make sure you're, you're not uh, finding liberal or higher critics, but um, the evidence for Jesus' physical life on this earth is overwhelming. And the truth is, uh, Nigel, if they don't believe, it's just because they don't want to believe. You know, Jesus said, um, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus said there's things you can do and things you can't do. And it's easier sometimes for people just to pretend that Jesus didn't exist. But but challenge him intellectually. Challenge him to be honest with his intellect and do a little research and tell him the reason that I'm asking you to do this is because the difference is heaven and hell. It's just that simple. The yeah. difference is heaven and hell. Um, there, there's another guy that I think you can read. Uh, Simon Greenleaf would be perfect. He, too, was a Jew. He was the, the Royal Professor of Law at Harvard. Uh, Simon Greenleaf, I think it's G-R-E-E-N-L-E-A-F, uh, and there's, there's wonderful um, um, evidence that he provides. He was challenged by his uh, law class at Harvard um, in, the, in the 19th century, early in the 19th century. He was challenged by them um, to, to use his uh, rules for evidence um, and apply it to the cross of Christ and the resurrection uh, that Christians claim. And, and this hardcore unbeliever, based on his own rules of evidence, which are still the rules of evidence that are used in, in American courts of law uh, today, um, he came to the conclusion that, that uh, Jesus is who he said he is. Now I've got to make a decision whether I'm going to believe or not, but there can be zero doubt that he is who he said he was. So Simon Greenleaf would be a really good one because he too is a Jew who was converted to faith in Christ. So that ought to give you a good start, Nigel. Wow, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you very much for calling. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Um, Here is a question from Jessica. She said, Pastor Ron, I know the gospel saves us, so why isn't the gospel the only message preachers give? Well, Jessica, there's something wrong with with the assumption. Uh, The gospel doesn't save us. The gospel means good news. Um, But it's a person that saves so it's the good news about Jesus. Now imagine I've got uh, a, a, a Bible study to teach tonight. Uh, if I went to 1 Corinthians 15, the first three verses, which declares what the gospel is, uh, how in-depth a Bible study would that be? I could just read the first three verses and say, okay, everybody who wants to get saved, get saved. Now, it might happen, but you see, The message that God gives preachers as we teach through the Bible is a message to teach Christians how to live. The gospel is not just for unbelievers. The gospel is for believers as well. The gospel for sure is for unbelievers in the sense that they have to know who Jesus is. There's good news. We have good news for people. And I can tell you, Jessica, from my pulpit, there is never, ever, ever a single Bible study, no matter where I'm teaching, Old Testament or New, there's never a single Bible study that doesn't include the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, and an invitation to become a believer. But remember, church is for Christians, so the gospel has to be for Christians. We have good news for Christians as well. It's the gospel for living. And so here's what men, what preachers ought to do. Bible teachers and preachers like me our job is to teach the Bible, not teach about it, not preach it, not take a few verses and tell stories, but teach the full counsel of God. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul was saying his um, emotional farewell to the Ephesian elders, he said to them, I have no blood on my hands because I have not failed to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. Jessica, that's a preacher's job. 
here at Calvary Chapel, and I can only speak for this church, but certainly we're not the only church that does this well. But we start at the beginning of one book, and we don't stop until we get to the end. Tonight I'm in Romans, or I'm in Acts chapter 4. Um, the next time I'm here on a Friday, we'll be in Acts chapter 5. So my church gets the whole counsel of God. That's the message that we're to give. Not only the message about how to get saved, but the message about how to live once you do. The message about who Jesus is. You see, when people get saved, Jessica, Jesus is a stranger to them. So they've got to get to know him. They've got to invest in this relationship. And the only way to do that is to find out who this Jesus is. And that's our job as preachers. Now, there are Lutheran churches, Jessica. Um, you have to be careful when you pick a Lutheran church because there's some real um, heretical sects of the Lutheran church. But basically, their idea is, you know, we're just going to teach gospel. And that's all they do, just kind of go through a 20-minute message on who Jesus is in the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And they'll have a little short, crafted message. Um, but, but the Lutheran churches are... Well, let's just say they're not thriving. Why? Because once we get saved, we got to know how to live. We've got to know how to walk with Jesus. So it's not just saving people. That's important. But it's teaching people to be salt and light in a very, very dark world. So, Jessica, I hope that answers your question. Here is anonymous question. I've never been asked this question before. I don't get many questions that I haven't been asked. Um, if Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, how did Jesus overcome sexual temptation? Um, when it says that Jesus was tempted in every way, it doesn't mean in every sin that we're tempted by, he was tempted by. It means that temptation came to him in ways that we can't begin to imagine. Um, I'm sure that the, the time that Jesus lived, women threw themselves at him. He lived in and traveled among a very, very perverse group of people. And I'm sure the devil would use some, even demon-possessed women, to throw themselves at him. But you see, Jesus didn't have to overcome sexual temptation the way we do, Anonymous. You see, if Jesus was tempted to have a sexual relationship that 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 wasn't godly, Remember, in him is light, there's no darkness at all. He wouldn't have had any problem with that at all. He said, my meat, the woman at the well of Samaria, who was one of those women, is to do the will of my Father. So Jesus was tempted by sin, but he was never tempted to sin. If a woman threw herself at Jesus, he never had that moment where he thought, you know, she looks good, maybe. No, I'm not going to do it. So he, he didn't have to overcome it. Temptation of all kinds was anathema to Jesus. You know, we, we look at it, and forgive me for being so blunt, but, but, but we look at a bowl full of vomit, and none of us would be tempted to dig in and start eating it. Well, that's how Jesus saw all temptation. So he was tempted as we are tempted to greater degrees than we are. But it was never that sin was attractive to him at all. When I get a question like this, um, I often use my own experience. You know, I've never had a drink of alcohol. I, I put a, 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 opened a can of Colt 45 as a high schooler. You know how we all do as kids. I put it in my mouth and instantly spit it out. It was so nasty, so foul. And, and I'm no longer in high school. So it's been a long, long time, but I've never, ever been tempted to take a drink. I just thought if it's that nasty the first time, why do I want that nastiness in my mouth? So it's never been a struggle for me. Now, I've been tempted by drinking a lot, be in business meetings, uh, especially with with uh, uh, Japanese businessmen. Uh, they, they would believe if you didn't drink with them, you couldn't trust them. I uh, had people who wouldn't hire me uh, in, in my old life because I, I told them I wouldn't go out and drink. 
So I was tempted, tempted by drinking, but I never considered taking a drink because it was nasty. Well, Jesus viewed all sin, all temptation that very way. It's hard for us to understand. In him is light, there's no darkness at all. Because we have so much darkness living in us. But this wasn't the thing. Now, Anonymous, if you're struggling with sexual temptation, the way you overcome it is to be with Jesus. If you're struggling with sexual temptation, you have a decision to make. The minute that temptation comes to say yes to you or yes to Jesus. And if you know Jesus, if you love him, the choice ought to be easy. Now, let me rephrase. Simple. Not easy. Because sexual temptation, like all temptation, is strong. But the decision to make ought to be very straightforward. I love Jesus. I choose Jesus. And that's how we have to learn to view temptation. So if you want to know how to overcome the sexual temptation in your life, is you just have to say yes to Jesus. You've got to be with Jesus. Here's the thing. None of us would be looking at filth on a computer screen, Anonymous, if Jesus was sitting right next to us at the, at the desk where the computer was. Or we're looking at our iPad and Jesus is right there with us. We're not going to look at the same sights that we might look at if he wasn't there. So be with Jesus, and his presence will give you all the strength you need, all the motive you need, to say no to sin and temptation. So I hope that makes some sense to you. Hey, thanks for the calls today. Appreciate the questions. We'll be back, Lord willing, on Monday at 4 o'clock. Remember, this is a church weekend. They all are. Go to church. Offer your body to Jesus. Be his hands and his heart. Find somebody and convince him how much Jesus loves you and how much he'll love them if they'll give him a chance. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll see you on Monday. God bless. Have a great weekend. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.